God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And thank you for this morning um, we've reflected on a lot. And we have prayed and asked um, that you would bring um, an end to the suffering in this world. And so, God, as we dive into your word in order to um, discover some truths, this morning in particular, we're going to be looking at how we can respond um, Christianly um, to opposition. So, God, as we reflect on this, um, encourage us. Um, it will be challenges. It will be challenging. And so, God, as we're challenged, may we not look to ourselves to live out what you're calling us to live, but to look to you and to your spirit to empower us to live a life that is worthy of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Sarah struggles to be around her husband's family. Why? Because they're atheists and they're always criticizing her for her faith, telling her that she's ignorant to believe in the fact that God exists. Mehdi was imprisoned by the government for converting from Islam to Christianity. He remained in prison until his case was tried. Mehdi was sentenced to execution but was released under pressure from the U.S. State Department only to later be found dead in a park. Michael is a college student who loves Jesus, but his passion for Jesus has attracted hate and scorn on campus. He and his Christian friends are regularly demeaned, debased, and targeted for their beliefs. These people don't all live in the same region or even on the same continent, okay? But they have something in common with us if you are a Christian, and that is they are all Christians and they suffer, and they suffer because of their faith. If you're a Christian, all right, the reality is that if it's not already happening, you too will soon one day suffer because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so the question is, when you do, or as you are, or if you are, how should you respond? In this section of the letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he um, gives them advice on how to respond to opposition. And the advice and the instructions he gives isn't just relevant for them, but it's also relevant for us as Christians living in the 21st century. And so this morning, we're going to look at three ways to respond Christianly to opposition. First way to respond to opposition, if you're making notes, is to remain faithful to the gospel. Remain faithful faithful to the gospel. Look at verses 27 and just the first part of 28. It reads, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Stop there. So Philippians, all right, book of Philippians is a first century letter written to Christians living in the ancient city of Philippi. The apostle Paul is the author. He's writing from a prison cell in the city of Rome while he awaits his trial before Caesar. And so like most convicts, all right, He's not sure of the outcome of his trial, all right? Is he going to be sentenced to execution? Is he going to be let go, um, set free? He doesn't know. But he has a feeling things will go well, and he'll one day see the Christians in Philippi again. But whatever happens, what Paul does is he writes this letter to thank the Philippians for their ongoing support. He writes this letter to remind them of who Jesus is and what he's done for them, and he writes this to um, encourage them to, be, to remain faithful. In this section of the letter, he begins by urging them to do what? To conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so the question is, what does this mean? Okay, first, the Greek term, right, translated conduct yourselves, that's the trans, it's in my translation, I'm using the NIV, um, it, conduct yourselves, uh, has the sense of behaving as a proper citizen. And so Paul begins by encouraging them to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, he calls them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This doesn't mean, all right, take note of this. This doesn't mean, right, they're to live in a way that deserves the gospel. That's religious, okay? What it does mean is that they are to live in a way that displays the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what, what, what he means by conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is to live in a way that shows that Jesus Christ is worth more to them than anything else in this world. Christians exist to live in a way that shows the worth of the gospel. And because the Gospel is all about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. The call for all Christians is to live in a way that puts on display the beauty, the worth, and the majesty of who Jesus is and what he has done. Put simply, Christians are to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul means by living in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? The next question, okay, we have to explore after this definition is, what does it actually look like to live or to remain faithful in the gospel? And this definitely, um, this question um, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the circumstances. For everyone, it's going to be different. And so the question we have to really ask is, as he's writing this letter to the Philippians, is what does it look like for the church in Philippi right, to remain faithful to the gospel? How can they make much of Jesus Christ 
in the face of opposition. Let's look at verse 27 and 28 again, all right? It says, what, he said, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you, um, see you or only hear about you in my absence, here we go, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Um, 28 without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And so, how can the Philippians remain faithful to the gospel in the, faithful, uh, in the face of opposition? By standing firm and striving together. Is how the followers of Jesus in Philippi can remain faithful to the gospel. To stand firm is a metaphor taken from the military. Um, the term wants us to picture a soldier who is standing his ground and refusing to be moved. The image, um, the word strive points to is that of an athlete. And the Philippians are not only called to stand firm, but, but, um, but similar to athletes, they're called to strive forward, um, to be on the offense, um, to defend as well as attack. And so in the face of, of opposition, Paul wants the church in Philippi to remain faithful to the gospel by, okay, by standing firm for the gospel like soldiers at war and striving forward into the world to spread the gospel like athletes on the offense. And they're to stand for the gospel and strive to spread the gospel without fear, right? Look at the beginning of verse 28. Without being frightened in any way, by those who oppose you. And so in the face of opposition, Paul's urging the followers of Jesus in Philippi to fearlessly stand for the gospel and strive into the world in order to spread the gospel. And this is not just for the Christians in first century Philippi. It's for us as well. We are also called to remain faithful to the gospel by fearlessly standing for the gospel and striving into the world to spread the gospel. On July 31st, 2020, the Orlando Magic, starting forward, Jonathan Isaac, became the first NBA player to not take the knee during the national anthem in, in protest of racial justice, um, injustice and police brutality. Isaac also opted not to wear a Black Lives Matter shirt, standing, right, instead in his team's jersey. Isaac's decisions made national headlines, as you can imagine, and so this year, Jonathan Isaac released a book entitled the book, Why I Stand. Um, in the book and throughout some of his promotional um, for the book, he reflects on his decision to stand. And this is what he said. He says, the moment was very hectic, but at the same time, I had peace. I knew what I was standing for was dear to me. I knew that Jesus was the answer to everything we see in the world, and so I decided to stand for what I believe. 
NBA star Jonathan Isaac was willing to stand for what he believes. He was willing to face public criticism, peer hostility, and widespread disapproval to stand for what he believes. And so, Christian, are you willing to stand for what you believe? As hostility, right, towards Christianity grows... Are you ready and willing to stand for what you believe? Are you willing to fearlessly stand for the gospel and strive to make the gospel known to the nations? Will you remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ especially in the face of opposition. That's the first way we respond to opposition, to remain faithful to the gospel. The second way, we, um, way to respond to opposition is to trust the God of justice, to trust the God of justice. Um, in the midst of opposition, what does the, uh, the Apostle Paul do? Um, he calls the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by fearlessly standing for the gospel and striving into the world to spread the gospel. And so that's the main command we have in verse 27. Next, this is fascinating. He makes them aware of something that is an encouragement to them, but it's a warning to their opponents. Okay? Look at verse 28, the last part of verse 28. Okay? It says, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. All right, the dictionary on my MacBook Air defines the word sign <laughs> in this way. I love that dictionary, all right? It defines the word sign in this way. Something regarded as an indication or evidence of what is happening or going to happen. So a sign is evident that something is going to happen, right? A prelude to an event. Um, dark clouds are a sign that it's going to rain. Um, it's spring, but before spring just entered into our world, you had flowers blooming everywhere, okay? And so when Paul says this is a sign, what sign is he talking about in this context? The sign, of course, we've looked at it, is their fearless standing for the gospel and striving forward to spread the gospel even in the face of opposition. That's the sign he's been talking about. And so, then what does this sign indicate or is evidence of? If we look at our passage again, right? First, it indicates that their opponents, those who are opposing the Christians in Philippi, will be destroyed. But it's also a sign, right, that the Christians will be saved. That's a lot, right? And so what's going on there? So, all right. Ancient Greek word for destroyed is apolia, okay? Apolia appears 20 times in the New Testament, and it means several things, in, depending on where it's at and what context it's in. It can mean destruction, 
as in wasting something or the destruction of something like buildings in a war. But at times, like here in Philippians, Apollia destroyed, speaks of this final judgment and the eternal doom awaiting those who oppose God's people. The way the Philippians are to live, all right, remaining faithful to the gospel, will be a sign that their opponents will one day be severely judged by God. Their faithfulness to the gospel will also be a sign that they are saved. In other words, their faithfulness to the gospel is a sign that they're genuinely converted to Christ and will one day enjoy the final salvation of all believers on the last day. And so, in the midst of intense opposition and persecution, Paul is encouraging the Christians in Philippi with these words, but he's also warning those who oppose them. D.A. Carson, renowned theologian and author, says this as a summary. Your changing character, your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand um, with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. Our God is a God of justice. And one day he will bring an end to all evil and injustice through his righteous judgment. And as we hear something like this, God being a God of justice, um, it's hard for us to relate here as Christians, right, in America. But think about the many Christians out there who are having to endure legit and physical persecution. I know for sure that some of them are crying out for what they're experienced to end. And they are crying that Jesus would return and judge and bring an end to all of this. And so we've seen that how we respond to, we've seen how we respond to um, opposition is to remain faithful to the gospel. Um, we've also seen that to um, respond Christianly to the gospel, we must trust the God of justice. Third way to respond to opposition is to expect that you will suffer. Expect that you too will suffer. Look at verse 29 and 30. All right? It's going to get interesting, guys. <laughs> it's going to get interesting. 29 and 30, it reads, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle um, you saw I had and now hear um, that I still have. All right? The ancient Greek word for suffer here is pasco. All right? 
This word is used primarily in the sense of persecution. And so, um, with this meaning of suffering in mind, this is what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying to the church in Philippi. You've not only been given the privilege of trusting in Jesus, but you've also been given the privilege of being persecuted because of Jesus. And Paul is sure of this, okay, this statement he made, okay, because he's aware that as he writes this letter to them, uh, the Christians in Philippi are, um, look at verse 30, they are going through the same struggle they saw him go through and they've heard he still continues to go through. And so what did Paul go through? What struggles did he go through? Um, in Acts chapter 16, um, talks about Paul's first time in the city of Philippi. And Paul went about, as he always does, sharing and preaching the gospel. Right? As a result, um, a fortune teller, he encountered a fortune teller who was annoying him because she was following Paul everywhere um, um, he went and continuing to say his name. And Paul got irritated with her, turned round to her, looked her square in the eye and said, in the name of Jesus, come out. Okay, whatever spirits and demonic activity that was going within her um, came out, okay, and as a result of that, her owners were mad, and they were so mad. Why were they mad? They were mad because she was their source of income. She was making a ton of money for them, all right, a ton of money for them, and so they got so upset, they informed their authorities and so many people in that city got together and had Paul. He was with Silas at the time. They had him captured. They had, had him severely beaten. And they had him imprisoned. That was what happened in Philippi. And so when Paul says to them, right, you are going through the same struggle, Paul is referring to his experience of suffering and persecution in, um, in Philippi when he was there. And he's saying, you guys are still going through that as well. And so Paul's writing to them, knowing that they're going through the same suffering as he did. That's why he says to them, right, verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. In other words, suffering because of Jesus comes with being a Christian. Suffering is part of being a Christ follower. At the age of 18, LeBron James went into the NBA draft. Okay? That's what happened to him at the age of 18. As for me, at the age of 18... God saved me. I became a Christian. And I remember how it happened, right? I was a typical teenager in London. Um, I was like living for success. I wanted to be so famous and so rich and so wealthy. I could buy a house for my mom and buy her like a hundred bags or something. My mom loved bags, okay? <laughs> that was my dream. But one day, and there was a series of events that led up to this, but 
how this happened was one day I was in my living room. It was late at night, and I decided to watch um, a televangelist preach the gospel. And this guy was intense. He preached the gospel, said, you are going to hell if you don't repent, and all of that. And I'm there in the dark going, oh my gosh, this is scary. <laughs> but as he preached, I was so compelled by Jesus. I was compelled by who he was. And I said, man, I want to actually experience the joy that is found in Jesus. And so late at night in front of the TV, I knelt down and I said, Jesus, take my life. Do what you want with me. After I was saved, I remember attending a church in my neighborhood and informing the leadership that I decided to follow Jesus. They were excited and rejoiced with me and reminded me that because of my newfound faith in Jesus, my sins have, my sins have been forgiven. God is my father. When I die, I'm not going to go to hell, but I'm going to go to heaven. And now I have a purpose. But during those times, as I informed other Christians, I don't really remember anyone telling me that I would suffer for Christ. No one told me, right? No one said, hey, Obed, it's awesome that you're a Christian. There's so many benefits. You're going to go to heaven. You're forgiven of sins. You now have a relationship with God, the creator. But you are going to suffer. No one told me that. And if they did, they probably would have used a similar voice. Like, you're going to suffer. I heard I was saved and loved because of Christ, but I don't remember ever hearing I was saved. And as a result, I would suffer because of Christ. Suffering for Christ is often unspoken and overlooked when it comes to our Christianity. And it's often overlooked and unspoken because we live in a culture, all right, listen carefully, with little or no physical persecution against Christians. But in many parts of the world, followers of Jesus are targeted for their faith. They are attacked they are discriminated against. They risk sexual violence, torture, arrest, and much. Seems for us in America, suffering for Christ seems kind of foreign. And so when Paul says in verse 29, yeah, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, that is suffer because of Christ. Think about it. As a human, because we live in a broken world, you will suffer. There will be diseases, natural disasters, all of that. But on top of all of that, when we become a Christian, we're supposed to suffer for Christ. All right? And so when Paul says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, we find it hard to relate. We find it hard to see how it applies to us. And I know this for sure. Listen, this coming week, your life, right, will not be in any danger whatsoever because you're a Christian. Not once for most of us here. 
Okay? You will not once fear for your safety because of Jesus. But around the world, other Christians, our brothers and sisters, are having to endure extreme suffering because of their association with Jesus. In just the last year, here's some stats from Open Door. There have been over the, um, the last year, this last year, over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Over 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith. Over 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. Over 4,000 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And so, right, when they read what Paul says in Philippians, right, about, you know, us being granted that we will not only believe, but for us to suffer, those Christians in countries that are having to endure physical persecution are like, we can relate. We can relate. We know what you're talking about. We haven't only believed, but we've also, we are suffering because of Jesus. But when we read it, we struggle to relate. And so the question is, does that mean we should ignore passages like this? We should say, oh, well, there's a passage about persecution and suffering. doesn't relate to us. Let's move on. Absolutely not. I think we can relate. I believe Paul's words speak directly to us as American Christians right now. And so how, how does it speak to us? And, uh, how do we apply the passages on persecution when we in the West don't have much of it? First, okay, if you're making notes, this is how it makes sense, those passages. First, we have to think of suffering for Christ by groups rather than individuals. Groups rather than individuals. When we're thinking about opposition, it's helpful to remember that persecution is not primarily about individual Christians, but the entire body of Christ. Paul in this letter is not writing to an individual in Philippi, right? He's writing to a group of people, um, a, a Christian community in Philippi. And so if we apply what he's saying to a group rather than an individual, it all makes sense. It does apply to us. It does apply to Christians in every generation and at every location. The church of Jesus Christ as a whole has and continues to suffer. More Christians are suffering for their faith than any other time in history. Millions of believers live in places where they are oppressed, imprisoned, discriminated against, and even violently attacked, all because they believe in Jesus, right? And we're not only supposed to just acknowledge this as Christians in America who, who are not experiencing physical persecution, but we're also supposed to do something about it. And so from where you are, with whatever time and resources you have, you can provide encouragement and support to God's family living where it's difficult to serve Jesus, right? And through ministries like Open Doors, and there's so many other um, ministries out there, you can support God's family in several ways. You can pray. You can absolutely pray for persecuted Christians. 
You can volunteer. If you go on the websites, there are um, options and you know op options um, on how to volunteer. You can write a letter. And lastly, you can donate. You can donate to Christians who are out there fighting the good fight of faith, standing for the gospel, and striving to spread the gospel in these difficult anti-Christian cities and countries. And before I move on, I just want to say thank you, all right? Later on, you guys are going to hear, all right, about um, um, some missionary partners in the Middle East we've been supporting. Recently, um, you know, they're in a, a Muslim country, and as a result, those who become Christians are automatically just disowned by their family, Okay, and we are able to, we've been supporting them, and recently we were able to support them more. They, they, they came out with, um, they had an idea to equip students on how to share their faith through social media, and you guys are going to hear. But I want to just say thank you guys, right? We were able to announce it to you guys, share information with you guys, and some of you were able to donate to it. And so thank you, but in light of the reality of so many persecuted Christians out there, you can pray, volunteer, write a letter, and continue to donate. The second reason why passages on persecution relate to us is that persecution comes in all shapes and sizes. In other words, persecution is diverse. Suffering for Christ is easy to identify when Christians are being tortured and murdered for their faith, but suffering for Christ is much harder to acknowledge when it's within the context of a relationship or academia. Most of the time when we discuss the topic of suffering for Christ, right, for us as Americans, the response is always, I, I don't think we even suffer for Christ as Christians in America. Right? I was talking to some people throughout this week as I was preparing the sermon, and I asked the question, and I said, Do we, you know, how are you suffering for Christ as a Christian? And a lot of them just took a long time <laughs> to answer that. But as we think about this, what is meant by this perspective is that we aren't suffering physically for our faith. In his article titled, Are Christians in America Persecuted? Author Kevin DeYoung argues that, yes, Christians in America are persecuted. And he goes on to say this. Yes, Christians in America are persecuted, but not as frequently, consistently, or with nearly the intensity that Christians are persecuted in other parts of the world. And he grounds his argument in passages like John 15, 20, where Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so while extreme suffering is a special category set aside for a select number of Christians, persecution is the normal experience for Christians everywhere. Kevin DeYoung adds, he says... From stiff fines, to family shame, to being kicked off college campuses, to laws against sharing our faith, to unjust trials, to public mockery and scorn, to arrest and brutality. If we faithfully follow Jesus in this world, we all will face persecution at some point 
in our Christian discipleship. And he's absolutely right. If we faithfully follow Jesus in this world, we will face persecution at some point in our Christian discipleship. And some of you here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. You can relate because as a Christian living in America, you've had to endure some sort of persecution and suffering because of Jesus Christ. Not long after I became a Christian, I was excited. I was excited to live for Christ and to enjoy the many blessings of Christianity. But as I said, no one told me that I would suffer for Christ. And so not long after I was saved, I was a college student at the time. And I'm not kidding. I was living differently. I wasn't going to the same places that my friends went. A lot of what they wanted to do, I said, I'm not doing them. And they asked why. And I said, I'm a Christian. I just don't want to do those things. And after all of those incidents, I lost friends. I really did. And they would mock me and make fun out of me and call me names for my newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And some of you know what I'm talking about. There's a friend of mine at seminary. Um, at seminary, when we're all graduating, we share our senior testimony. We have five minutes to share. And by the way, just so you know, FYI, FYI when, that, when I went to share my testimony first, I passed out and I fainted. Um, I'm going to tell the story another time, but there's a preview for you. But my friend... And my friend came up and he shared about his journey to seminary and pastoral ministry. And this is what he said. It's been a long and challenging journey to not only to get to seminary, but to graduate. But to get to seminary was tough. And it was tough because as soon as I announced to my parents that I wanted to go into the ministry, they disowned me. They always wanted me to be a doctor, and they invested money and time, but I felt God calling me, he said. And so when I said God is calling me to the ministry, they turned around and disowned me. So persecution is happening. Your commitment to Jesus may have led to tensions with your family and friends, your commitment to Jesus may have left, led to tensions with employers and co-workers who think you're out of touch with society and reality. Christian students are being mocked and made fun of for their faith, right? We have a couple of students here. I'm sure some of you have encountered real suffering and persecution because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And I would say if you haven't experienced suffering for Christ as a Christian. just want to remind you of two things. It's coming. It's going to come. And also, the question you have to ask is, are you actually living for Jesus? Or have you settled for comfortable, nominal 
easy Christianity. Because Jesus said it, it's there. If you live for Christ, you will suffer. And so you have to wrestle with that question. And so this morning, we've been reminded of several truths. We've been reminded of how to respond to opposition. And how do we do that? We remain faithful to the gospel. We trust the God of justice and we expect to suffer as well. And so I don't know what you're going through, but whatever kind of suffering you are experiencing, I want you to take heart in your Savior who has overcome the world. Jesus, he was the one who died and experienced ultimate suffering, and he left heaven and stepped into human flesh, and he lived a perfect life, died, and rose again, having victory over Satan, death, and death, and he rose again so that he may take the wrath of God for your sins. And so Jesus is your greatest example of how to suffer well. He really is. Let's pray. God, you are good. And you are great. Thank you that you've not left us alone to figure things out. God, you are aware of everything we're going through and everything we're going to experience. And through your word, you help us. And so thank you for helping us this morning. Thank you for reminding us of how we can respond to the opposition by remaining faithful to your gospel, by trusting that you will have the last word, and by being reminded that this is part of our Christianity, but the most important thing that you've shown us doesn't you understand what it means to suffer and that our suffering doesn't save us like yours saved us but our suffering in ways that is sometimes a mystery to us glorifies and exalts who you are and so god i pray that you would comfort i pray that you would give courage for us as we live in a society and a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. Pray that through your spirit we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel, even in the face of opposition. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.